How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is Locked On NBA. I'm David Locke, host of Locked On NBA, radio voice of Utah Jazz, and founder of the Locked On Podcast Network. One of our absolute favorites, Kevin Pelton, joining the show. You can follow him at Twitter at at K Pelton, as is traditional with this show, if you could send him a thank you for joining the show, I'd greatly appreciate it. A bunch of you did that for Chris Ballard. I really, really appreciated that. If you have not done so and you want to thank Chris Ballard, he's the only interview he gave about his Sam Hinkie interview is here to Locked On NBA. So thank you very much. Today's show is brought to you by SeatGeek, BetDSI, and Indochino. Indochino makes... Measured suits. You can use the promo code LOCKED and get a discount off your first order. Check them out at Indochino.com. And SeatGeek is the number one place for you to buy your tickets to any upcoming event, whether it's a ball game or football, basketball, theater event, concert. Here's why. Because they're using technology to revolutionize the ticket world and make it better for you. First thing, they pull all the tickets available from all the sites into one place. You just download that SeatGeek app and all of the available seats are right there. Second thing is on that SeatGeek app, they grade all of those tickets for you based on value. You immediately find the underpriced seats. You don't have to try to go look at the arena sheet and this and that. They give you a ticket score on everyone and then finally it's secured. You don't have to worry about any of the hassle of all that stuff and you get it right to your phone. So right now Go to your SeatGeek, go to your app store, whatever it is, download the SeatGeek app, and then when you add the promo code LOCKED, you get $20 rebated back to you after your first purchase. So they'll send you $20 after your first purchase with the promo code LOCKED. All the tickets in one spot, ticket score, secure, and easy on your phone. No reason not to do it. So right now, download the SeatGeek app, add the promo code LOCKED, and you get $20 back from your first purchase after by SeatGeek. So download the app now. All right, we're all set. Kevin Pelt, ready to go. We'll, I have a theory about the game we'll talk about. We'll run through the mysteries of the league. We'll roll through the East and the West. Pretty fun conversation. Here it is with Kevin Pelton. So, Kevin, we've got to start with my deep thought. These are dangerous, often fruitless, but I've been working on this one. I've talked to coaches about it. Are you ready? I'm ready. So if the premise of Moneyball is that you're trying to find the inefficiencies in the marketplace, what other people aren't doing, things of that nature, everybody, seemingly everybody, is playing one big four out right now. So why isn't the inefficiency to go five out, like who, who had Grant at center? The Oklahoma City had uh, Grant at center the other night. or Yeah, that was interesting. Or two bigs, like the Jazz have done with Favors and Gobert. It's worked. Frankly, Memphis is doing it less often, but when Zach and Marcus have been on the floor, it's worked. 
Uh, actually, even Costa Kufus and DeMarcus Cousins are positive together, which seems to be like the worst combination of two bigs you could ever have. So what, what about this? Uh, and then I'll share some of the coaches have said. What about the argument that you should go either five out or play two bigs consciously for portions of the games because that's where the inefficiency lies and you can take advantage of that now because everybody's going four out, one big. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the, the line in Moneyball that, that rings appropriate here is, I, I, think, and I think this is Billy Bean, I don't want to misattribute something that Michael Lewis actually said to him, which was much of the criticism of Moneyball back in 2004. Why would, why would Billy Bean write this book about how great he is? Uh, but I think his, point, his comment at one point was, you can't beat the Yankees if you play like the Yankees because the Yankees are going to be able to do that better because they have so much more money. So that's the whole underlying theory of the look for the undervalued strategy. Now, I guess what I'd say is it depends, you know, whether there's uh, a clear superiority of one strategy over the other. Because, you know, another way to think about it is, well, why doesn't an NFL team go out and play uh, a, a wishbone offense? Not that you really see that anymore, even in college football, but like that would be going against the counter where everyone else is trying to play this spread shotgun offense that's really dependent on the quarterback. And we won't depend on our quarterback at all. And there's this whole pool of running quarterbacks that we can pick from, like Tim Tebow, who's not even in the NFL and is playing baseball. But you can't do it because it's just a clearly inferior strategy to playing a pass-heavy style. Now, there's some variation within that. But is it that, or is it a case where it's just a slightly better style and the difference is small enough that you can make up for it by having a superior personnel that's available to you because of the fact that other teams are looking for big men who can play on the perimeter? And so I'm not sure which the answer is, but I'm curious what the coaches you talked to had to say. So before we get into that, somewhat I wonder how much of this is I'm always mesmerized by how much coaches are actually aware of criticism and how much coaches are unwilling to kind of go outside of the box because of what people might say. So how much do you think no one's playing two bigs or five? By the way, I'd, I'd kind of count Minnesota. They're kind of a hybrid weird one. It's hard to tell. Gorgie Zhang's not a stretch, and Carl Anthony Towns kind is, but that's another combination that's doing it some. Um but how much of this, particularly the not playing a big at all and just going five wide, five guards, five small forwards and guards is because coaches are nervous of reaction? I don't know. It's weird. Coaches are nervous about that in some things and then not in others because, you know, if coaches were just going based off criticism, then they would play endgame situations a lot differently. We wouldn't see isolations at the end of games because that constantly gets criticized, and yet coaches still do it because of the fact that they think it's the, the dominant strategy in that case because it you know, allows you to control the timing of the final shot and avoid a turnover. So, it, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, that one, you know, I think that, that's me, a factor. But, let, me, let me jump in there. That one I've talked to coaches a lot about. That They really believe that the – they understand the failure of isolation ball and hero ball at the end of a play, but they they really view that one as the risk of the ball ending up in the wrong person's hands or committing a turnover outweighs that. But why do they believe that outweighs the criticism and the value of playing two bigs doesn't outweigh the criticism? 
that's I guess what I'm asking is why why does it matter one place and not the other? And I think that's because of the fact that they're probably less convinced about this than the other. Okay. Interesting. So here was the most interesting comment, um, and I'm going to leave the head coach out only because I said to start the conversation that it was not on the record. I was just curious. I was doing background information. I don't think he would mind if it's on the record, but I just – so I'm not trying – just everybody understands that. Uh, he said the five out you can do in college the way Calipari's doing it, but the 48-minute game is too long. That to run an offense five out – the amount of cutting and moving and uh, running you have to do to do it successfully is not manage not feasible for a forty-eight minute NBA game with ninety-five to one hundred possessions. That's interesting. I mean, that gets sort of to the the Popovich quote about you know once we saw the sport view numbers, we realized how much Tony Parker we were actually asking him to do, and we started managing his minutes differently. Um, I wonder, you know, is that because of the fact that so. You know, having five guys on the perimeter, as great as it sounds, it actually in some ways is not best because of the fact that then you've got too many guys on the perimeter and then it's easier to guard two, two players, you know, on the, on the one side of the ball, on the weak side with one defender. And that's where it's actually more valuable to have that player stationed under the basket. And if you don't have one default player stationed under the basket, guys are constantly rotating into that spot. Is that, that what I'm supposed to make of that? Yeah, that was a comment from another head coach, was that five-out offenses are just very difficult to run That for exactly what you're saying. Spacing a floor five-out is very difficult. Now, I, I wonder, I, I would think you could cut from multiple places at one time and do a lot of different things and really flummox people. Um, I've, I still feel like we're going to head there at some point. But maybe, maybe it is. Maybe I mean they know more than I do, so maybe that's right. I don't know. I mean, in, it fits with what you've talked about, which is the value of the big who can finish, whether that's in the pick and roll or someone who's in the dunker spot on the baseline where they duck in and catch the pass from a driver, finish at the rim when you draw the help defender. That's a little tougher to do from the perimeter. Now that's a really long cut to be in that spot. So it's an interesting. I, I do think that there's some – I mean, I guess part of this also gets into then, on the two bigs, it gets into what the value of the offensive rebound is. Yeah. I mean, the other aspect that comes into play here is, you know, what if you're playing smaller lineups with guys who are interior players? Because that was what was interesting about the Jeremy Grant lineup and then also, you know, what OKC did last year in the playoffs, uh, what Billy Donovan put, did putting Andre Robertson at the floor. Because these are guys who, when they play on the perimeter – they're not, they're, not out, they're not out guys. They're not spacers. They can't shoot well enough. So then when you play them as big men, suddenly they're both mobile defensively, allow you to switch a lot of things and give, give you some versatility there, but then also it makes them more effective because you're putting them around the basket and not forcing them to space. The other one on this that I, that I just – this is my thing, I guess. But I just still think we undervalue the dunk. And I know that sounds really silly, but these big men that can just dunk, that can get to the rim and shoot six and seven shots a night from one foot away are incredibly valuable. And we don't talk about them that way because of the fact that they're not, there's no offensive moves to it. We used to criticize Shaq because he just dunked all the time. And DeAndre Jordan, who's actually not having as good a year this year, uh, is – Never thought of as an offense player. He shot 70% last year. Rudy Gobert is shooting 60-some-odd percent this year. Like, 
that's the goal of the possession, right? Is to get the ball in the hoop as efficiently as possible? You know, the challenge is they can't do that on their own. They have to have the other guys around them. And, you know, that's where, you know, Gordon Hayward and, and George Hill deserve some of the credit for what Gobert is doing this year. What, uh, you know, Chris Paul deserves a lot of the credit and Blake Griffin for what DeAndre Jordan has done. But it, it is a symbiotic thing there, I guess, uh, where you need both of those players. And, and maybe the most interesting example of that this year would be Clint Capella and James Harden in Houston. Now, obviously, Harden is the more valuable member of that duo. But, you know, the, there was the, the report a few weeks ago, uh, maybe during preseason, that, you know, uh, Daryl Morey had asked J.B. Bickerstaff, his interim coach, to play uh, Capella over Dwight Howard so the Rockets could see what they they had in him. And at that point, it seemed, you know, kind of unfair to Bickerstaff because he's also trying to win every game and make the playoffs, and Howard was presumably the better player. But in some ways, Capella does seem to be the better offensive player at this point, even though he's less capable of creating his own shot because of the fact that you know, kind of he's willing to just be that dunker guy, and, and he and Harden have developed really incredible chemistry in the pick and roll. I don't like this argument, by the way. I'm now picking a fight for the sake of a fight. Uh, we're good enough friends. I can do this to you. Um, I don't really love this argument because, frankly, most three-point shoot shots are assisted and s- off somebody else also. Right? Sure. I mean, the amount of players in our league that are actually just scoring on their own – uh, like what? Five, six? Uh, it's a bit more than that. Really? I don't know if we want to come up with a list. I mean, if I go look, I at, mean, if I go know. look at isolation basketball and synergy, and find the top guys who've done ISO in like thirty possessions or more, or whatever my sort is. What are we not? Are we counting pick and roll? Ball handler is creating offense. I don't know. I mean, I, or are you are you crediting that to the center? Yeah, the 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 uh, the, the screener. Well, I think it's probably a two-way street, isn't it? To I mean, some extent. Have, I mean, it certainly matters, sc- like I said, but I, I yes. think the, the greater variable is the ball handler ability. We have screen assist now. We do. Any thought on – I love that stat. You think it's actually got value? I'll tell you. I can tell you a head coach who loves that stat. I, I can tell you, uh, Cody Zeller, I know, loves that stat. No, uh, Bismack Biombo. Uh, I, I think it's got value. I, I think it's a little problematic to just look at it in terms of the number of screen assists without knowing the number of screens you set and things like that. But it, there certainly is some merit to it in terms of, you know, if, if you set a screen that gets someone open, it's just as valuable as the, you know, D'Antoni style flip the pick and roll, and then it's the, the big man who's actually getting the shot. Okay. The amount of guys that. All right, but wait, but let's go back to but let's go back to that conversation now because I mean right. I I'm going to Blazers I'm going to Blazers Thunder tomorrow and that's why we're recording this podcast on Monday instead of Tuesday. I feel like I'm going to see three guys in that game who legitimately create their own shot and you know Victor Oladipo could plausibly be a fourth although he's not really doing it this year. And so, how would you define those possessions for those guys? Like the ability, how would I define their like ability to do ice, that? Or when, when, when they self-create? Would you call it off a pick and roll? What, what kind of possessions are you talking about here? Uh, anything that I think that comes off the dribble. Whether there's a pick set or not. Yes. Now that number's getting larger because now you're going to include Kyle Lowry into that, and you're probably including. So you're 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 that number gets larger in this in our conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, if you want to compare Gobert's offensive impact to someone like Kyle Korver, where it's primarily a spacing and created off of someone else's assist, I'll buy that. That's that's plausible to me. I mean, I think I think Gobert's got a growing All Star case at this point. I think the other one though that gets interesting on this is you also just you know it's all works together. I mean. I think Goran Dragic is leading the NBA in assists, but he also, excuse me, leading the NBA in drives, but he also leads the league in passes on drives because they have so little spacing, you can't ever get to the rim. Mm-hmm. So then it all actually plays together, right? Jeff Teague, I'd be curious to look at some some stats view stuff on Jeff Teague's ability to drive last year versus this year. Well, Teague actually is playing quite well lately. I think he's he's up to now where his season numbers are probably pretty similar to, to where he was in Atlanta. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think what we're getting at is here we often talk about how defense is five guys playing in concert and it's difficult to break down inter- individual contributions. And uh, the, there's an interesting piece today on uh, by sports that I, I talked to Spencer Lund about that uh, he wrote, wrote up on that one. But, uh we don't talk about that as much in offense. We tend to think about that more as a one-on-one thing. It's more of the, the equivalent to baseball where you can isolate, you know, field goal attempts and assists and all of this. But there is an element where the five guys are working in concert because of spacing and the, the concepts of gravity that we've talked about in the past. All right, go back to an offhand comment you made there about Gobert All-Star case. Uh-huh. What's your thought? I mean, I feel like there's – I look the – the Western Conference is, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to be Dick Vitale where you put 77 teams into the NCAA <laughs> So part yeah. of it is you've got to say who's not making it. Blake Griffin didn't make the All-Star team last year, nor did Damian Lillard. So, I mean, it's a really hard thing to put somebody on this All-Star. Nor did, you know, DeAndre Jordan hasn't made an All-Star team yet. What's yeah, and I think that's the kind of guy he's going to be in competition with. I mean, I, it, it depends a lot on whether the, the coaches want to take uh, two guards in their wild card spots. Because if you assume, okay, the starting guards are Paul and Harden or Westbrook and Harden with two of those three guys. Oh, no, Curry. I, come, I forgot about Curry. So two of those four guys start, two of those guys, four guys come off the bench barring injury. And then you have to pick two wild cards and you've got Lillard and Clay Thompson. So our coach is going to pick both of those guys or are they going to pick one of them and then a front court player? Right. Gordon Hayward's quest to make the all-star team is almost impossible. It's very challenging. I mean, at least he's probably, I guess, in that front court pool technically. But uh, still, I think you know they're going to look at it more as like bigs versus smalls than and put him mentally more into that perimeter category. Do you have Blake Griffin on or off the All Star team? I mean, I haven't looked at it closely yet, but I. <sighs> uh, I don't know. Probably my, my gut says off. Twenty-one nine and five on a team that's you know what seventeen and five or something insane, maybe fifteen and seven. Yeah, can we, can we can we talk about this by the way? Why why do we have conferences for the All Star game? I have no idea. I get why we have conferences for the playoffs. I don't. Get I think that there's either. a lot of value to that. I don't get that either. I would have gone the other way with this whole thing. I would have gone divisions and got rid of conferences. Yeah, I think we've had this debate before, right? Yeah. Probably. I can, I can hear your dismissive tone of what you think of it. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I guess I, I give you credit, though, because a lot of the people who propose this are people who are journalists who are not having to actually make this travel. You are actually going to potentially have to make this travel if the Jazz are playing in a playoff series against you know, the, the New York Knicks. 
and uh, your willingness to do it, you're putting your money where your mouth is. So I'll give you credit for that. Okay, that is, that is thank you very much. You think it's an insane idea? <laughs> I, but, I don't think it's insane. I think it's weird that people talk about it in basketball and nobody talks about it in the NFL or baseball where conferences aren't even aligned in geographic ways. Right, right. Like, yes, I, I agree. And, and, by the way, they don't actually know where they're going until six days beforehand. Yeah. The, the other thing I think that comes into play that people don't think about is the, the, probably the bigger issue than travel is well, what happens if all of a sudden we've got four teams from the West Coast somehow end up in the Final Four? Like, that's, that's unlikely, but if you, if you build a scenario where it's possible and give it a long enough timeline, eventually it'll happen. So your Final Four is the Warriors, the Clippers, the Lakers, and the Blazers for some reason. And you have to play one of those games at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. What do, what do you do then? So that's actually, that's actually it's, the prob- it's not the problem in the it's the problem early, uh, in early rounds it's actually more likely than you're saying you only need three of the four for that to happen yeah right because it's two home games on the west coast when TNT but it's not the it's not the conference finals because they they put those those alternate nights it's the round before I've talked to actually people that matter uh, on this one and it's the round before that TV kills this idea that's, yeah, semifinals, conference yeah, semifinals. That's, yeah, that's the reason we can't go to the sixteen best teams. So, if we went to the twenty whatever best play, uh, teams, what would be the All Star game though? Like, what do you do? Draft it? You have Kenny Smith and Charles Barkley draft their teams like they do the rookies, and then they just play a game. I think that's a pretty good scenario. I mean, obviously, you know, it's been done in football now. I think it's been done in hockey. So it's and then, like you say, we do it for the rookie game, so it's not that big of a change. And, I mean, if you pick that roster at this point, if you're picking the 24 best players in the league instead of the, the 12 in each conference, how many of them are from the West? That's, well, I, I, I asked this on Twitter the other day. I, I think you have to get to yeah. like 30 before you get to the 12th best Eastern Conference player. That seems reasonable. I mean, I think the split would be something like 15-9 probably. Right. And then also the fact that you have both DeAndre Jordan and Rudy Gobert make the All-Star teams not a problem because they each get drafted on different teams. Right. I like it. Call Adam. He's open to things. <laughs> the other one I want All-Star weekend, I, uh, by the way, is I want a one-on-one tournament. I mean, I, I'm surprised they haven't experimented with it. Like, everyone was so gung-ho about horse, and then it turned out when they actually did it, it wasn't that fun, so... But you gotta try it to see it. I want to see. I want to see James Harden, Carl Anthony Towns, one on one. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Who wins? My money's on Harden, but I, I'd like to see it. Anybody beat Westbrook one on one? How about when we ended with Durant Westbrook in the finals of the one on one tournament? You don't think that would have viewership? I, I'm also I'm giving pretty good odds to that Curry guy because the ability to just dribble back to 30 feet and shoot the, the three is a pretty valuable thing in, in one-on-one. Can I ask you a question? Why do I prepare this interview? Yep. <laughs> it's a great question, yes. Because you know that we're just going to come up with so many random topics that we could never prepare for. All right. I actually did prepare. I have three mysteries in the NBA I need answers to from you. Okay. Toronto's offense is the best offense in the NBA? 
did they fall back behind Golden State last night? I, I, I haven't checked this morning. Okay, fine. They're the second best. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're historically great like Golden State. Is this really true? Yes. And how is this possible? I mean, I wrote about this last week on ESPN Insider, so uh, I, I, I see you must not have had a chance to read that piece because I, I talked ju- about how... Or I just set you up to look good. Okay, what, okay. One of the uh, two. <laughs> As the, the, so, the prepared host says dismissively to the subject of the interview. <laughs> they're, so, uh, t- they're, basically, they're tied at 114.2. Oh, okay. So basically, Toronto has, over the years, been the most balanced offense in the NBA. Most offenses, like the Warriors, that are really great, succeed primarily because they're so good at shooting. Uh, Last year, Golden State wasn't above, I don't think they were above average, I know they weren't top 10, in any of the four factors of of offense that Dean Oliver uh, came up with, which are shooting is measured by effective field goal percentage, offensive rebounding percentage, uh, free throw attempts for field goal attempt for ability to get to the free throw line, and then turnover percentage. So if you look at those four, the only one they were above average at was effective field goal percentage, the shooting category. But that's so important, and they were so good at it that they still had the second-best offensive rating in NBA history. So Toronto is kind of the opposite of that, where they're, they're good at shooting. They're not bad at it. But uh, I looked at it over the last three seasons combined back through 2014-15, which is the start of when they've been really good offensively. And they are in the top 10 in all four of those categories. Nobody else is even above average in all four of them. So they've got this like very balanced, it's like a balanced diet of offense, basically. They're getting a little offensive rebounding, some free throws. They're not turning it over, and they're shooting it reasonably well. But lately, they've been shooting it blisteringly hot. And when you combine that to everything else they're doing, that's how you get an extremely good offense. The is that make it more sustainable? No, it makes it much less sustainable because shooting tends to be the, the thing that runs hottest and coldest over the course of the season. But, I mean, it, it makes it makes the historic level more less sustainable. Uh, it makes the ability to be a good offense probably somewhat more sustainable. I would say. Now, neither of these numbers may be able to hold where they are. But there's an interesting little thing going on right here that, as and I get Cleveland's coasting, um, but they're 17th or 18th in the league defensively right now. Yeah. Does that make them any more susceptible to lose to a team like Toronto, who's become this have this type of prowess offensively? Um, maybe a little because I do think part of that is not having Matthew Delavadova is an alternative to Kyrie Irving, who is an extremely poor defender during the regular season, but we've also seen, we know what Kyrie can do defensively during a seven-game series. We know what LeBron can do defensively during a seven-game series. So I, I, I wouldn't say I'm too concerned about it. Do you think there's any chance, and do you think it matters if Toronto catches Cleveland? I, it matters. I mean, they did win both of their home playoff games last year in Toronto in that conference final series, or to the first two, I should say. So if that series is 2-0 going to Cleveland, that's a little bit different tone than last year when it was split 2-2. But, I, I, I mean, I, Toronto – Cleveland has already won twice in Toronto this year, right? So I, I know they won at least once. Right. So what I'm shooting at is with this offensive number and what they're doing right now, should we be viewing them any differently than we did a year ago? A little bit. I mean, the other interesting question about that is 
how much the fact that they're not as good in shooting terms plays into the fact that their offense collapsed, collapsed as much as it did in last year's playoffs. Now, maybe it's just Kyle Lowry wasn't healthy and, and they had bad matchups for DeMar DeRozan because you faced a bunch of teams with big wings who could kind of shut him down and, and take away a lot of what he likes to do offensively. I, that one bears some more research to me. Kevin Pelton is with us, ESPN Insider. I have an idea for you. You could give the ESPN Insider as a Christmas gift and to somebody, and then they could click on all of Kevin's articles, and then Kevin would be rewarded and loved by his bosses. And we like Kevin, so we want him to be rewarded. This is Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Before we get to our next mystery, let me tell you about Bet DSI. Do you love to get into the action and play it, whatever it is, basketball, football, whatever? Then check out BetDSI.com. They've been in the business for over 20 years. Uh, they've got a great deal for you. If you use the promo code NBA10, you end up getting $10 on your first for your first wager, and they give you a 100% bonus on your first deposit. So BetDSI.com. Use the NBA10 promo code, and you get yourself the $10 to try the service. They pride themselves in their customer service. They pride themselves in their fast and easy payments on winning. And they have hundreds of football and basketball wagers for you to choose from. They also have some UFC. So they can do it all. Live in-game wagering as well on football and basketball and other major sporting events. If you want to play the bowl games, the horse racing world that I do, all those kind of things, you can do it at Bet. DSI.com, promo code NBA10 for BetDSI.com. Mystery number two. Memphis Grizzlies have won six in a row without NBA players. How? Well, first off, they have NBA players this year, and they've at least got Marcus Gasol as an anchor. Let me rephrase that. Uh, Let Let me quote Peter Edmondson of Locked on Grizzlies. When Mike Conley got hurt. There's a decent chance we're rolling out the worst point guard combination in the history of the NBA in Andrew Harrison and Wade Baldwin. I'm just quoting Locked on Grizzlies at that point. And just since Andrew Harrison is shooting 29% and Wade Baldwin is shooting 31%, he might actually be right. How are they winning games right now? I'm amazed, by the way, that... Paul, that Harrison was still like two for nine in that game where they beat the Warriors and, and scored a bunch of points. So that, that was really hard to understand. I mean, I, I think the main answer is that they have been so outstanding defensively in this stretch. You know, one of the things that people have kind of missed sometimes about the Grizzlies is as great as we talk about their, as much as we talk about how great their defense is. And it's generally been pretty good, really good. It's been consistently really good. Like they're always in the top 10, sometimes in the top five, but very rarely have they been the best defense in the NBA. And over the last six games, they have been the best defense in the NBA and they've been that by a wide margin. Now, if you want to, me to explain why that's the case, that gets a little bit trickier, but I, you know, the, the one thing that Harrison does give them at point guard is he gives them a lot of size that they don't normally have with Mike Conley. So, when the Grizzlies go and win six in a row, and and actually part of this, to the, not to minimize it, they beat Orlando and the Lakers and the Pelicans and the Sixers, and they beat the Blazers, which was a little surprising. And then really, they, you know, when they beat the Warriors by 21 and nobody scored, they're never within 18 in the second half. You either think the Warriors ate way too much Central Barbecue or that there's that this is really remarkable. Um, so the one thing that 
the two questions that came to mind when I looked at this Grizzlies trying to figure out what they're doing is either is Marcus Gasol far better than we realize? I'll give you the second answer. Uh, okay, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I went and looked at his numbers after looking at this, and it's kind of fascinating. Uh, have you noticed that Marcus Gasol is rebounding like a small forward this year? No. Yeah, a lot of that is because of the fact that his offensive rebound rate is down because of the fact that he's you know, shoot, spending so much time beyond the arc shooting threes, things of that nature. His defensive rebounding is more power forward-like than it is center-like. But yet the Grizzlies are really good at defensive rebounding overall. So that's, that's one I'm curious to figure out more about. Um, and then you know, Gasol's offensive efficiency, it's, it's more or less where it's av- ever always been which is about average. I mean, that makes him, you know, when you combine it with the playmaking that he offers from the center position, the above average usage rate, all of that, uh, a good offensive player, but it's not, it, it doesn't make add up in the same way that Russell Westbrook carrying Oklahoma city adds up. Let's put it that way. Can I, can we go outside number, our traditional numbers here for a second and just kind of wonder, is there something we're not valuing correctly? Like, is there something more important about an assist from a center? Is there something more important about a high quadrant three from a center? Is there something out? Is there something about his positioning, his screen setting? Is there anything else out there about him that, going out of our traditional numbers we should be looking at in some different capacity to understand what he's doing? I mean, I would think generally something that probably is underrated is the ability to do things that are atypical for your position. So like point guard to defensive rebound usually tends to be a pretty good indicator. And maybe you could say the same thing about centers who you know, are, are good passers in terms of that, that value is even greater than just strictly the fact that they're getting twice as many assists as the average center or, or something of that nature. Um, I, you know, the other interesting thing is what Gasol has done late in games this season, because usually you think about teams that, that run through their big man, and that's a tough thing to do late in games because you, know, you can – you can slide over extra help. You can make that entry pass more difficult, things like that. And Gasol, since he's playing at the at the high post, really, uh, he's able to get the ball no matter what. And he's been just making a ton of shots, it seems like, in all these close games that they're winning, which really should be a big part of this conversation because before that Warriors game, all of these wins were by a couple of points. All right, let's go. Good, Good point. Let's go to my third one. I understand how absolutely, unbelievably awesome Russell Westbrook is. It's incredible. But I feel like there's more to the story of Oklahoma City being 15-9. and nine. Why? Okay. What, what's the mystery there that I'm missing? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it is Westbrook. Uh, defensively... The fact that they've been, I think they've been better than they have been last season, despite losing a pretty good defender in Durant is interesting and in, in starting your rookie at power forward. Um, like maybe Andre, Robert, maybe Andre Robertson's really good. He made an incredible play last night on a drive. To the, I think it was an Avery Bradley drive to the basket. He killed Carmelo. He killed Carmelo the other night. Yeah, he's had a much better. He didn't have a very good regular season, I felt like, last year. His regular season has been very good so far this year. It's interesting. I've heard you know, from people that the, the Thunder generally believe that he's not as good uh, defending 
bigger players that they prefer him defending, you know, kind of more ones and twos than threes and fours. But he, he's done a very nice job on the, the guys like Melo that he has defended. I mean, they've actually beaten good teams, too. Like, I always keep an eye on what teams' records are in the standings against above 500 teams. I think they're decent. My memory is that they're fine. Like, they're they're 6-6. Six and six. It's not like they're feasting off teams that aren't very good. I mean, the point differential still isn't very good. It's not. It's more typical, I would say, of probably a 13 and 11 team or a 14 and 10 team than it is a 15 and 9 team. The one thing I will say about the Thunder, though, is I think there's uh, the potential for them to do something similar to what Houston has done since Patrick Beverly got back, if they get uh, Cameron Payne healthy and replace Samaje Christian in their rotation with uh, Cameron Payne because they've been they've been so ineffective anytime Westbrook hasn't been on the court. The other team I'm waiting to do this is Detroit. Now, Reggie Jackson hasn't been very good, but Ish Smith comes out just terribly statistically to me. So the fact that they're 13 and 13 and have had to play Ish Smith 30 minutes a night or whatever crazy number it is, probably exaggerating slightly there, 28.3, uh, I feel like they should be on the verge of somewhat of an explosion once Reggie, if Reggie Jackson gets back to normal. Yeah, and they've also played a difficult schedule, had you know more road games than home games, I think, with, with Jackson out. So for them to survive and still be in the mix was very impressive. And it's going to be an interesting race for kind of third through fifth in the East if we assume Toronto now has definitively locked into that top two, which we probably should, barring injury. So, you know, Boston is the team that we all expected to finish second or at worst third, but they've started slowly, haven't been able to – deal particularly well with the injuries they've had. I think they're going to be okay ultimately, but you know, there may be a 48-win team. Can Detroit get there? Can Chicago get there? Someone in Charlotte maybe? That's, that's become a more interesting race than I expected. Speaking of injuries, we all know where I'm going here. The Utah Jazz <laughs> have played more games without two of their projected starters than they have with four of their projected starters. Does that make sense? So they yeah, bit, so they've had bit, three or fewer than more than they've had four or five. Right. And they're 15 and 10. Is that remarkable to you? Is that, hey, that's what you're supposed to do? What's your thought on that? I wouldn't say it's what you're supposed to do now. I mean, I think that's that's quite impressive. You know, I, it's a little worrisome that, they, that there continue to be so many injuries, but if this team gets healthy, then, yeah, I mean, I think the potential is pretty obvious when they've got even just both Hayward and, and Hill on the court together, that's let been, alone Favors, who hasn't been, been out there with them. That's been for five games. Yeah. The starting and those have been really, really good five games, right? Yeah, not very good teams. They're 5-0, and oh, and their differential's like a million. Uh, <laughs> they've played 12 minutes with their starting lineup all season. Yeah, so, I mean, I think for them to be not only solidly in playoff position, mean, but not really have given up too much ground to anyone so far, is, is I, I'd feel good about that. All right, before I turn it over to two other prepared questions, ha, such, such work on my part. Um, I had an hour drive before I considered interviewing you. Um, do you have anything, when you look back at your uh, – season projections and your ratings and that where you've watched this year and you've said, why is that happening? Like if my three were uh, Memphis, Oklahoma City, and Toronto's offense, 
What has been your item that you've looked at this year and you've said, wow, that doesn't jive with what I thought was going to happen? Why Washington's bench has been so bad. I mean, I guess, and it's not even that it, it, I mean, it makes sense when you look at who they're actually running out there on a nightly basis, but it's bizarre that they're a team that has played really well with their starters in the game. Their starters have been healthy, which I think was my biggest concern coming into the season, and yet they're still not playing well because of the, bench, the fact that the bench, without Jan Mahimi, has so completely undermined everything that they were trying to do. Interesting. Do you think they're out of it? I mean, I, you know, I think as well as the starters have played, unless you go out and bring in someone really good to supplement that bench on, on the perimeter in addition to Mahimi on the interior, like what I thought they were going to be, you know, at full strength was, you know, like a 45-win team. And that was factoring in some Beal and, and Wall health issues. Uh, so maybe if they, you know, if they avoid those, they could be a, play at a 50-win pace the rest of the season. But even that, I'm not sure if that's at this point enough to get them in the playoffs. I thought your answer was going to be the 14 and 10 Knicks. Yeah, I mean, that's another one where their, their differential doesn't match it. Let's see here. They're, they're outscoring. They're Being getting outscored. outscored by 2.8 points per 100 possessions. Yeah. And their schedule has been relatively friendly. And they've been mostly healthy. They've played the last couple of games without Rose and, you know, have done a nice job without him, given that, that they really only have one other point guard on the roster and Brandon Jennings. Does Derek, but, does Derek you know, Rose being out hurt them? If the alternative is Sasha Vyushich playing backup point guard, yes. Okay, fair enough. So Brandon Jennings not being your backup point guard hurts you more than Derek Rose being out? Yes, that, that would be my, my theory on that one. Uh, if Melo misses a couple of weeks, that'll be interesting to monitor. But I think this is a team that, that I think they are going to, at this point, more likely than not to make the playoffs. And that certainly is better than I expected. But I don't feel like they're a dramatically different team than I expected. All right, final part with Kevin Pelton, ESPN Insider. Click on his articles. Make him feel happy. This is Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Your team has a daily podcast, 15, 22-minute, or if it's Danny LaRue, it's like 35 every time. But he's got the Warriors, so there's a lot to talk about. As the holiday season is rolling toward you, you might want to consider Indochino.com as a fabulous gift for someone you love dearly, or you might ask for it. It's what I've done. I've asked for it from my wife. Because premium Indochino suits are just $389 at Indochino when you enter in locked at the checkout. So Indochino is one of the largest made-to-measure man men's uh, brands, made-to-measure men's wear brands. Uh, You go through this whole checklist of like 15 different measurements, and then they make you your suit, your shirts, whatever it is, uh, and it is just amazingly different than getting it off the rack. So that's Indochino.com. You can get premium suits for just $389 if you use the promo code LOCKED. At the checkout, that's about 50% off regularly priced made-to-measure premium suit. So why don't you check it out, Indochino.com, and never worry about badly fitting suits or expensive trips to the tailor every time. I can't tell you how many times I've bought the good suit and then have to pay for tailing. Indochino.com. What should catch our eye as disconcerting? Cleveland losing three in a row? The Warriors getting blown out by 20 to an inferior team. 
or the Clippers suddenly losing five out of seven, I think it was? Um, of those three, I would probably say the Clippers. I mean, the, the, the Warriors just, they have a weird tendency to do this. You know, my, my brother and I were, uh, let's see, I guess we were, I don't, I can't remember what we were watching on Saturday that wasn't the NBA, but, uh, oh, we were watching the MLS Cup because the, uh, the Sounders won the MLS Cup. And uh, by, by we the, saw that halftime. By the score. way, I'd like to point yeah. out, since in our previous podcast, we mocked, I mocked soccer once, and people were mad about it. You just got to stop giving me ammunition. <laughs> I, oh my gosh. I didn't even know I'm where gonna, the story was going when I started it. I'm going to come I, up with a game we can play where someone never tries to score, nonetheless even do score. They don't ever – we're going to play this new basketball game, and you never have to take a shot at the hoop. You just can put ten guys on defense all the time instead of just five, and you never have to shoot. And then we'll do a free-throw shooting contest afterwards to win. It'll be awesome. Okay. They tried to score. They just didn't try very successfully. They didn't get a shot on goal. And they won the MLS Cup. Come on. <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. That's like having a ideal way to win cup. it. They should make there's a hole in the cup. So every time they put something in the cup, it falls out. <laughs> no, because Stephen Fry will be right there to save it. Oh. oh nice. Nailed it. Okay. Uh, anyways, my point was I saw that score at halftime, and my brother was like, What do you think the chances are they come back to win? And I was like, I actually don't think it's that high because when they when they do this, they usually lose by thirty. Like it's either they win or they lose by thirty. That's the way the Warriors basically work. So I'm not not too worried about that one. Uh, Cavaliers, I think they you know they're just coasting and that's going to happen for them. And then Daddy LeBron is going to get angry, as my colleague Amina Hassan likes to point out. Uh, so I guess I would say the Clippers out of those three. Uh, I, I I don't know if I thought this that them losing you know by 20 at home to the, or by 10 at home to the Pacers and 20 on the road to the Pacers was inevitable after the strong start, but they, they were kind of playing over their heads and there was, were some pretty obvious markers in the statistics that what they were doing defensively wasn't going to continue to work. But all of a sudden they look a lot more like the same old Clippers in, in terms of, you know, great starters, the bench no longer nearly as strong. And we sort of know how, what the ending is to that. So I, I guess I would say those three, the Clippers. I question. I go back to. Uh, I think I had this conversation with Sam, uh, Amick on uh, previous Locked On NBA, where two years ago I asked Doc Rivers, "Is there a point where a group has had a, too many collectively bad experiences?" And he gave this answer that that's why they changed up the roster and added all these other guys. Da, da, da. And then I this year came back and asked him, like, "Well, how is this different?" And he says, "Well, these guys have been." feel robbed of their opportunity last year, that, that they, want to, they want to finish this and determine their own script. I got to admit, and this might be a bad analogy, but this is how I see them right now. That couple that, like, never got married, but, like, stayed together for, like, five years and had all sorts of arguments along the way, and then they go through this good stretch, and everyone's like, oh, look, it's fabulous. And the minute they hit a bump in the road, they're just absolutely back to where they were, and that couple inevitably breaks up and doesn't get married. I see them as uh, Charlie Brown going to kick the uh, football, and every time the Warriors are Lucy pulling that football away from them. But they all still stay getting along. I, I think the, mar- the non-married couple ends up fighting too much. 
Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I just feel like the, I feel like they're good enough to beat the Spurs in the second round this year if that ends up being the matchup and make the conference finals. And they'd got they'd get farther than they'd ever gotten before. But I, I, the Warriors are just on another level. Are you still certain they're the third seed? No, you know, I was a little too dismissive. Someone asked me in my chat the other day whether it was possible that Houston might end up the second best team in the West, and I kind of wrote that off, brushed that off. But the way they've played since Beverly has been back, I don't think it's sustainable for them to keep outscoring opponents by you know eleven per a hundred with Beverly with Harden on the bench, which is what they've been doing in that stretch. But that, that's a good team. That's a top four team in all likelihood, and maybe a top three team. All right, quarter poll of the season. That's why we held this conversation. Uh, we'll wrap up on this. Your guess on the top four in the West and the East at this point. How will it finish? Yeah, so it's tough. Okay, so I, I mean, I do still think, I do still think Golden State, San Antonio, Clippers in the West, and then I, I, I would put Houston in four. Although it's weird, I feel like Utah is is good enough certainly to be there as well. If if it ends up being a Houston Utah first round series, that could be an epic one on on not quite the historical implications of Clippers Spurs a couple of years ago, but in terms of team quality could be fairly similar to that in the East. By the way, Cleveland, then, by, the, by the way, if that happens, then we're all rooting for the Memphis San Antonio series just to scare the hell out of everybody in San Antonio. And we somehow <laughs> need the thunder to slip below Portland so we can have the Westbrook Durant series. I, I I wouldn't mind a, another Warriors Blazers Blazers matchup. Yeah, that, would, I mean, that wouldn't be the worst thing yeah, in the that, world. That would not be bad either because that was that was pretty darn good. But I was just trying to create topics. I do think the eight playoff teams are pretty well set at this point. But um, all right, so so you you put Houston at four. What about on the Eastern Conference? In the East, I'm still going to go Cleveland one, Toronto two, Boston three, Detroit four. Detroit. So you're kind of on my Reggie Jackson theory. You're yep. dismissing yeah. Steve Clifford, the most underrated coach in the NBA. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when everyone was talking before this year about how Clifford was like a default going to get them to 45 wins, I admit I was a little skeptical. I pointed out that two years ago that they, they weren't that good, but that may just have been the Lance Stevenson effect in hindsight. Does Brad Stevens continue his honeymoon as everyone's favorite? Uh, everyone's favorite? I'm just being, I, I I'm think, being a talk show host yeah. right now for the fun of it. I know. I know what you're saying. I, I, he has definitely enjoyed uh, exceptionally high approval ratings throughout the league the last couple of years here. And, yeah, it does, you, know, you know what the best thing that probably has happened to Brad Stevens is that they haven't gotten past the first round of the playoffs. That's, that's the worst thing you can do as a coach. Interesting. Billy Donovan. Everyone starts picking apart your flaws. Billy Donovan got him on a few plays last night. The fact that he didn't have a certain uh, undersized point guard from the University of Washington down the stretch of that game probably did not help matters. Yeah, but who was he going to – who was that – where was he going to put him? That's true. Robertson – was Robertson in the game? Uh, he might have been. I mean, I, I thought it was interesting. There, there were a bunch of little things last night. They weren't big. I mean, and it's ridiculous sometimes to say it's coaching. But, um, I, you know, I thought it was interesting Marcus Smart didn't guard Russell Westbrook for a possession or two late last night. And Avery Bradley did. I'm not sure. I thought that was the best move. I thought 
uh, Billy Donovan clearly knew the way Boston played pick and rolls and set up a play where Boston overplays the pick and roll in a certain way and Russell went the other way and was just free sailing and Al Horford played Ole rim defense. So, um, My Celtics observation here is it's interesting that for a team who we talk about all their amazing depth that they can't win when their stars are injured. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. At some point, at some point, are they maybe more dependent on Thomas Crawford, Crawford Crowder, and and Horford than uh, than we've been giving them credit? They've pl- they're three and five when they're missing two starters this year. Three and one when they're missing one. Seven and three when they have their whole lineup. All right. Well, that's not that's not so bad. Then. No. Three and five when you're missing two starters isn't terrible. But it definitely you know you part of the reason I think that people had them in that second spot is oh they can survive injuries better than you know, Toronto or. Detroit or whoever, and lo and behold, those teams have had, Detroit has managed its injuries pretty well. You know, Toronto hasn't had to deal with anything more serious than uh, Demar Carroll missing games due to rest, but we'll see. By the way, the reason I did that research is just to finish the podcast. The Jazz are ten and two if they have one if they're only missing one starter. That's not shabby. They're five and eight when missing two or more. Including, yeah, that's, uh, including that's that's very competitive. Including punting one. Yeah. Uh, yes. Don't, don't know. If they, don't know if they were going to win that one anyway. Yeah, but probably a smart move. All right, that is Kevin Pelton. He is on ESPN Insider. Uh, give him a bunch of links. Do all the nice things we usually do. We really like Kevin. Thank you for your time. Did I leave anything out that you think was this? utterly important that you can dismissively mention right now to me to say, like, you know, you really should have talked about this. Uh, no, I don't think there was anything I want. I went in here wanting to talk about that we didn't talk about other than the fact that somehow uh, Oregon and hired a Stanford guy and a Harbaugh guy as their head football coach. What, what's up with that? I don't know, he's good, though. I, I don't know what to make of the fact that all of a sudden the Pac-12 North has two Stanfords in it. Um, That seems troubling. Well, to where we started the conversation, I was going to go there at the very beginning because when everybody else went spread offense in college football, Stanford Uh went power, they did have some pretty good quarterbacks in that time period. Um, But it's – that was going to be my analogy at the very beginning of our conversation today to playing two bigs with everybody else playing a different style. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one. See, we brought the whole show into a full circle like it was really, really well prepared by professional broadcasters. (laughs) If only they do.